Hey, all you nature nerds, this is You're Gonna Die Out There. Welcome back, Nature Nerds. It is uh, Megan sitting across here from Jen. Hello. Our storyteller for today. I am. We have a little, I want to give a little shout out before we get started. We got a message from one of our listeners um, on Instagram. Her name is Belinda and she sent us this really sweet post and it was mostly about people getting baby ducklings. Oh yeah. And then just releasing them Mm -hmm. in, you know, random parks and them having to fend for themselves because she really loves this local park where she walks and she loves, you know, seeing the ducks and feeds them occasionally. And um, when she was started looking into it, she realized a lot of them were pets originally. She's like, I don't rescue ducks and that's not my thing, but I just want to, she wants to get the message out. Yeah, that's great. There was this post she sent us and it was like, don't buy if you can't commit. And it's not something that you really think of, you know, that like ducks at the park could possibly be just ducks that people got rid of that they just couldn't take care of or they didn't know what to do with them. Yeah, they say a lot of them, especially the little ones, they'll die within days or the younger they are within like hours. Wow. Yeah, it's really sad. So if you want to check it out, we did a story about it, but you can go to Hoof and Feather CO, I don't know if it's like company or and then at for underscore duck sake. <laughs> That's pretty funny yeah. for duck's sake. Thanks, Belinda, for sharing that with us. Yeah, and I really she's also like that. from Georgia. Yeah. She's from um a town very close to my hometown. That was all I had for oh, today. You. I think we have a patron, a couple of patrons a shout out at the end. We do. Yes. Do you want to hear some science news? I think I do. I think everybody wants to hear some science news. Some sweet science at news. At all times. All right. So I want to talk about the Oscars. Just kidding. <laughs> um, so this science news comes to us today from sciencenews.org. And it's actually an opinion in their health and medicine column. It is written by Tina Hessman Say, who is a senior writer and also in um, a senior writer for molecular biology. Wow. Now, she wrote this March 25th, 2022. So... Uh, only a few days ago, and it is entitled How I'll Decide When It's Time to Ditch My Mask. Recent mask guidelines are designed for communities, not individuals. So Mm. I thought this was interesting because she talks a lot about how she's noticed this trend ever since the CDC put out their new mask guidelines. Like there are a lot of communities that are just everybody is ditching their mask, right? And she's trying to decide like, when am I going to feel comfortable with that? At what point? Am I going to feel comfortable? And I've been thinking about this a lot because here in Guam, there were recently some mask mandates that were lifted in certain places on island, but Mm -hmm. then in others, they're still there. And my son actually is really worried about whether or not they're going to lift the mask mandate at his school and how he should respond to that. You know, and my thing to him is, listen, your teachers, the school is going to make a good decision to support you. They have throughout this whole thing. Mm -hmm. If you end up taking your mask off, you've been vaccinated because he's 12 and he also had his booster shot. I feel pretty confident that he's going to be relatively okay. Like if we get sick, then it won't be that bad. Right. Right. right so right. I've been trying to like make him I'm feel like, better sure. about that. Sure. It's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very controversial it uh, is. subject you're it, bringing up. It is. You know, and I've been thinking about it. I'm like, you know what? We do a lot of science news on like kind of not super controversial. Well, Usually it's about species. Right. And this has just been something that's been on my mind. And then I happened to see this lady's article and I was like, yeah, I feel you. Heck yeah. Because I worry about we're going to visit the States to see family Mm -hmm. and like 
what's that going to be like? Because I'm very comfortable wearing a mask. But at what point is it okay to go out and take it off? Like, what are the I numbers? I like wearing to look a mask because like? then I feel like I don't need to do anything to you, look okay. You don't have to smile at anyone. I don't have to smile, and I don't have to wear like any. I don't know lipstick or. You can just like roll out of bed and throw on a mask, and yeah. it's all good. It covers up all of your all period acne. <laughs> you're like you're like hormonal acne. It's yeah, perfect. I feel you. So I guess what she was really talking about is that the CDC guidelines are more about making sure that not so many people overwhelm the hospitals. And since a lot of people are vaccinated, there aren't as many like hospital stays that are going on. So the CDC is like, yeah, you don't, have to wear ma- you don't have to wear masks. It's fine. I really like this part too. So she kind of talks about the kind of percentages side and a little bit of opinions. But then she says, I'll tell you a secret. I really don't like wearing masks. They can be hot and uncomfortable. They leave lines on my face. And sometimes masks make it hard to breathe. At the same time, I know that wearing a good quality, well-fitting mask greatly re- reduces the chance of testing positive for the coronavirus. In one study, N95 or KN95 masks reduce the chance of testing positive by 83%. It goes on to say school districts with mask mandates had about a quarter of the number of in-school infections as districts where masks weren't required. She feels that like with that kind of data... Even though the CDC is saying, hey, you don't have to wear a mask, uh, she feels like she's not ready to not wear a mask, even though she doesn't really like them. And you and I have talked about this before, I think in a very early episode, that like masks in Guam. It's hot. It's so hot. It's super hot. It's like breathing a sauna. Yeah. Sometimes I just, I don't know, feel more comfortable with them on. She said that uh, there are nearly 36% of 1,916 respondents to a Science News Twitter poll said that they still wear masks every day in public. 28% said they will mask in inside in indoor crowds. And 23% that said that they only mask where it's mandatory. So only about 12% of the people who were polled on this Science News Twitter poll uh, don't wear masks at all. You know, my sister is in Oklahoma and she was mm-hmm. saying that she's like, well, no one wears masks here anymore. Right. I was like, no one, right. no one, no one. So I bet some people do. She mentioned that it is kind of a regional thing. So this writer uh, lives in the Northeast mm-hmm. and where she lives, people, it's probably more like 30% of folks still wear masks. But when she goes to visit people in the Midwest, it's like nobody's wearing a mask. Yeah. Um, so right. yeah, it's kind of a regional thing. When and you get into certain, <laughs> I know certain uh, demographics, maybe political lines that we don't mm-hmm. really like to talk mm-hmm. about here. Mm-hmm. Uh, there might be some differences, and I do worry because when I visit family, I'm going to be going to those places, those reddish places. What if someone yells at me for wearing a mask? Oh, I've been trying to play it over in my mind. <laughs> Just fight back. That somebody will get it on a recording. I, definitely. And I'll be here and I'll be like, what's this? And what's then a, it's me. It's just you. Just just me yelling With your at mask. Somebody. Being like, leave yeah. me alone. I do what I want. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but you're not my mom. <laughs> she ends her article saying that in maybe in a few weeks, if there's no new surge in infections, because the surge, I think, was also something that was keeping her wearing masks is kind of this like, and even my son mentioned this. And I'm like, wow, you really listen to stuff that I listen to. They're kind of these surges of different variants, right? And she feels like, okay, if there aren't any more surges in infections, then Mm -hmm. maybe she's going to feel more comfortable walking around in public uh, without the mask. She thinks that she might wait until the number of cases in her county is more in the single digits. 
than where it is now. And I'm like, yeah. Well, I feel like that happened here. They've dropped the mask mandate twice and had to put it back. And I'm like, all right, guys, when do we learn? Yeah, when do we learn about this or not? Mm -hmm. Um, I like how she ends this article. She says, here's what I do know. Even if I do decide to have an unmasked summer, I will be strapping my mask back on if COVID-19 cases begin to rise again. And that is the exact information I told to my son. I was like, listen, if stuff, you know, let's say you do go and there's no more masks at school. Mm -hmm. If the cases start rising again, we'll just wear masks again. No worries. Yeah, we have a lot. Yeah, everywhere. And I always think about all the people that, um, you know, we get a lot of tourists. Well, before the pandemic, we got a lot of tourists from um, different like Japan and I would say mostly Japan. Mm -hmm. People traveling from there, a lot of them wear masks. Yeah. When they travel. It, just in case. It's more protective. More protective. Isn't it kind of like when you would... F- I never did this, but when people fly and they take that medicine... What's the thing you can airborne? take? Airborne? Airborne. <laughs> That's it. I, I always wonder about that. Airborne is just like a boost of vitamin C, honestly. It's just like, have a real... Just have yeah. an orange. You'll be fine. Yeah. Although I have... Okay. My sister did give me this like essential oil, which is real crunchy for me. So I, I saw that I have had flown from Hawaii to mm-hmm. Atlanta and it was like winter time. And she was there in Georgia when I met up with my family. And um, she gave me this essential oil that had like a bunch of stuff in it. And she's like, yeah, just rub it on the bottoms of your feet and you won't have any sickness, you know, from like the plane. You won't have any... Uh, what's it called? Time lapse? What's, what am I trying to say? Jet lag. Jet lag. She's time like, lapse. Time lapse. Time warp. Time warp again. Yeah, she said, uh, you won't have any jet lag. And I did it. And I was like, yeah, I mean, it smelled nice. Did it work? I didn't get sick. Anyway, so that was my science news. I know it is a little on the like, whatever, but I just thought it's been on my mind. I've been thinking about it. It's sciencey. It is sciencey. Yeah. And it's, you know, relevant. I have a super exciting and long and I think I might know what you're talking about because you've like kind of mentioned some stuff. Yes, we're to the third trimate. Is that a great ape? The last great ape? Well, the Are trimate would be like the third woman to study the primates. Got you. We kind of early on, I think episode what ten or eleven, we did the chimpanzee, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I and I talked about. Uh, Dr. Jane Goodall yes. and that one. She was the first. And then the second one we talked about more recently when we were distance uh, recording. Wonderful. And I talked about Diane Fossey with the gorillas, the we, mountain gorillas. And we cried long distance. Everybody cried oh my for that God. episode. It was rough. That was, that was a it hard... Took a, it took a while for us to get it together. together. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So nothing that hard. Diane Fossey and Dr. Barute... Galdicus, who we're going to talk about today. Anyway, they're very different personalities. Yeah. She's very chill. And so who knows? I, I know she has stories, like crazy stories. She may not be the kind of person that wrote about it specifically. I think she wrote about some things. Anyway, we'll, we'll get there, but I don't think there's going to be any something that sadly devastating. But the whole big picture is very devastating. Either way, we're going to be devastated. It opens your eyes to some things that we all have to make some big life choices. And it's going to weigh heavy on you and you're going to be like, oh, damn it. Jen. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> in May of 2015, there was an Indonesian environmentalist. His name was Jopi Perenginigan. Probably I'm not saying that right, but Perfect. he was um, stabbed and killed outside of a bar in South Jakarta. And I couldn't find any kind of end result on this, but it has been suspected that his murder was related to his activism with this group called Sawit Watch. They advocate for people's rights over social justices and um, environmental concerns regarding the uncontrolled 
and this is from their site, the uncontrolled impacts of rapid and large-scale oil palm plantations development in Indonesia. Yeah, palm oil is like a big part of what you're going to talk about today. It's a big part. We're going to learn about some palm oil today. I'm just going to throw everything in my house out. Basically, that was in 2015. In November of 2019, there were two activists and journalists... Uh, Maratua Saragar, 50, who was 55, and Maradin Sayanapar, who was 42. They were both found dead with multiple stab wounds. I mean, w- horrific injuries. Um, and they were found near a palm oil plantation. It was highly suspected that their deaths were due to, you know, dispute with people's lands, that one of the owners of this particular plantation had been illegally taking more land And these people, these activists were fighting for those communities and they were basically taken out by hitmen. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they linked it to this owner of this plantation. And the owner of the plantation, they had found that he had also tried to kill through these hitmen another um, farmer. Not a good guy. I wanted to bring up those two stories just to show kind of that people who are speaking out are trying to stop what's happening over there. This is what they're up against because Indonesia has 14 million hectares of oil palm plantations and it's the world's largest palm oil producer next to Malaysia. They had a total output of more than 40 million tons of palm oil in 2018. I don't have the most recent numbers. There were 171 recorded cases of violence against activists in Indonesia between 2010 and 2018. And that's according to an Indonesian Human Protection Foundation. It said most of the victims were environmental activists. They're really up against something there, right? So let's talk about palm oil real quick. So a lot of this I got from the uh, World Wildlife Federation Mm -hmm. site because they have like every single thing. Anytime you look up any species or any issue, WWF pops up with a little cute panda. And I'm like, it's true. They're just all over everything good on them right they do have good information though but i pulled this from different sites but mostly from their site so what is palm oil you ask some of you may not know because it's a sneaky little oil we're gonna love to hate palm oil at the end of this it's an edible vegetable oil it comes from the fruit of oil palm trees the scientific name is elaeus genesis i think crude palm oil comes from like squeezing the fruit itself and palm kernel oil comes from like crushing the kernel or the stone in the middle of the fruit so look it up look at a picture they almost look like betel nut to me that plant is native to africa but they were brought to southeast asia over 100 years ago and it was just supposed to be like an ornamental ornamental i was as soon as i said i was like (laughs) ornamental tree crop but now they say indonesia and malaysia make up 85 percent of the global supply but there are also 42 other countries that produce palm oil There's a lot in South America, too. I read another article about a Brazilian activist who was also killed. So what is it in? Everything. It's in every goddamn thing. Everything. Like when I was kind of reading about it, I was like, I do remember reading about palm oil and making concerted effort to purchase things that didn't have palm oil in it. It is difficult. It's hard. It's so sneaky. So it's in nearly 50% of all packaged products that you find at the grocery store. It's in pizza, donuts, chocolate, deodorant, shampoo, toothpaste. It's also used a lot in animal food and feed, Mm -hmm. which makes me think about my chickens. I'm like, oh God, like I had to go check. It's also used as a biofuel in a lot of parts of the world. So why is it everywhere? 
Is it cheap? It's extremely versatile. Um, it has all these different properties and functions that make it useful. It's basically, it's a semi-solid at room temperature. So it keeps things spreadable like butter, margarine, like that kind of stuff. And it's resistant to oxidation. So it gives it that shelf life. It's really stable at high temperatures. So fried foods stay crispy, crunchy, um, and delicious. (laughs) 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 It's also, it's odorless and colorless. So it doesn't give, you can put it in anything. It doesn't hold a a flavor, right? So whatever you season your processed food as it stays, (laughs) it's also in a lot of Asian and African countries, it's used as a cooking oil, but we, we don't really use it. We don't see it. We see vegetable oil, right? Right. Any other kind of oil, sunflower or whatever, like canola. But But is it like in those? I feel like it is mixed into a lot of stuff. But compared to other vegetable oils, oil palm, it's um, a very efficient crop. They can produce high quantities in like small areas, Mm -hmm. but they don't because they make a lot of money. Like they just take up so much land and it can also produce year round. So there's no seasonality, at least Uh in that environment. Right. People can make a lot of money from this. As we know, it's the major reason why, why there's so much deforestation. In a lot of parts of the world, it's affecting a lot of species that I'm going to talk about today. The loss of those forests coupled with the conversion of this, you know, the soils. Mm -hmm. So you have this carbon rich peat soil that's just being ruined with these by turning it into crops. Basically, they say it's throwing out millions of tons of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So it's, it's a major contributing factor to climate change. So more than just tilling the soil to put in your crops, but also the plants themselves? Yes. Oh, wow, okay. There also is a lot of like human exploitation, not only because there's a lot of like cheap labor, child labor, loss of these rainforests and this habitat doesn't only affect the species in there, but it affects the indigenous people mm. who use those forests. So it changes the whole culture because a lot of this has happened with the palm oil industry in the last 50 years. I'm going to talk a lot about in Indonesia. I'm going to talk about Borneo a lot. Mm-hmm. And if you look at that area, there's a map that shows from 1950 to 2020 how much deforestation. It was basically like the whole island was green and now there's just like little speckles of it. It wasn't only the palm oil. The forest started going down for um, lumber initially. And then this this just added to it. So another issue is that there's a lot of a lot of times people will set fires to clear the forest to create, you know, land for more plantations. And it adds to those emissions in Indonesia, which there's 261 million people living in Indonesia. I had no idea it was that many people. It's a lot. So yeah, it's a really bad thing. I'm going to talk about what people are doing to try and find sustainable ways to produce palm oil because it's Mm -hmm. almost going to be impossible, right, to get rid of it at this point. One of the things that just makes me crazy about this is that most of this comes from like when everything changed with people's diets. When they were like, you can't eat that whole butter because it's too fat and everybody was trying to lose weight. Remember when everything got like the weight loss craze and people wanted to eat and they were saying it all, all of that led to heart disease, which now we know is not not true. It's not the case. Right? It was like everything went low fat, no fat. Yes. Yeah. But everything was still like high sugar. Right. And also, you know, you got to think like things started getting more expensive. Households Mm -hmm. started eating out more, you know, or buying more processed foods because people weren't home to cook as much. They don't have time. They're working so much. Right. Yeah. So processed foods diet foods, all of that, I feel like people don't see the effects of what that did to 
actual forests where there's yes. actual things that need to live there. Yeah, I, I um, remember like 1987 to like 95. Yes. It was like um, snack wells. Totally bought the snack wells. I yes. know exactly what you're talking about. And it was always like, oh, low fat, no fat. I always found it interesting because a lot of my friends, they would get margarine. Uh, that was like a huge craze, right? Yeah. Their, their families would get margarine. Mm-hmm. And my mom, the one thing I will say about her uh, in terms of that craze, because she did also kind of fall into some oh, things yeah, with like the no fat, was that she would never buy margarine. She was mm-hmm. like, you only use butter, unsalted, regular butter um, and whole milk. Which is probably why I still love whole milk so much. She tried to do skim milk for a minute. Yeah. Oh, my mom did all the skim milks, all the everything. I mean, because that's what people did. Yeah. The Surgeon General was telling people, this is what you have to do. Right. To to eat healthy. So all that crazy stuff has now led to, let's talk about the top 10 critically endangered species from 2022. Mm. According to Dr. Chris Drew, and this was from faunafacts.org. So in 2022, which is now, there are 37,400 species threatened with extinction. 3,483 of those are classified as critically endangered by the IUCN. That's a lot. So when it says critically endangered, they have a 50% probability of going extinct within 10 years or three generations. Let's start with number 10. We'll work our way down to number one. This is a sad list. I'm really excited. But we're, we're going somewhere with this. Okay. So number 10 is the North Atlantic right whales. I feel like I just read an article recently and I was going to do it as a science news that they found a bunch of them. Did I do it already? I think you might have talked about that. Ooh, that they found a bunch familiar. of them in the Antarctic, I think. Oh. So that's good news. But basically, there's a bunch of whale species that are listed as endangered by the IUCN. But this one is the one that's... At the top of the list. I'm not going to go into detail on every single one of these except a few. Number nine, I'm going to go into detail on because it's the Sumatran tiger. It's estimated now that there are 328, it's kind of a range to 900 Sumatran tigers left. It's probably pretty hard to pin that down because they're hiding. Recent surveys demonstrated a population decline of 16.6% between 2000 and 2012. The biggest concern is that there's basically these subpopulations and they've, because of the deforestation, they're so fragmented that they say there's only two viable populations left. Jeez. Um, And it's defined by a presence of 30 or more females, breeding females. 30 ish at least someone has a worse dating pool than me oh god this is so depressing (laughs) it is pretty bad here sorry just gotta lighten it a little bit they traditionally were found in the forested areas lowland and mountain areas on the island of sumatra in indonesia but like the Sumatran elephant and orangutan who they share habitat with have been impacted by guess what Palm oil farmers. No. The majority of the remaining Sumatran tigers live in a series of dispersed but fragmented national parks, although about 100 remain in unprotected forest, but that forest is rapidly being eroded. Number eight, the Sumatran elephant. The most up-to-date survey they have on the Sumatran elephant populations was from 2008, and they were estimated to be around 2,400 to 2,800 left in the wild. But they think given all the decline, really fast decline in the forest, that that might be lower by now. They were once like found all over Sumatra, but in the last 40 years, they become locally extinct in 23 of their 43 known ranges. 
Number seven, bumblebees. Certain species are critically endangered. The suckly cuckoo bumblebee, Franklin's bumblebee, and the rusty patched bumblebee. I'm just going to plug that you should go back and listen to our bee episode. That's all. That's why I'm not going to go into it because you need to go back and listen to that. Number six, which I was kind of like, because I really like these guys, but macaws. Oh. So three of the 19 species are critically endangered. That's the blue-throated macaw, great green macaw, and red-fronted macaw. There's one, the Cuban macaw, that's already extinct. Also, loss of habitat, poaching, same, samesies. Um, number five, hammerhead shark. Oh, here. So it's on here, the small eye, the scalloped, which is the one right. that's here, and the great hammerhead sharks, critically endangered. Number four, rhinos. So there are three of five species of rhinoceros that are critically endangered. That includes the black rhino, the Mm. Javan rhino, and Sumatran. There's another one. The white rhino is near threatened, and the greater one-horned rhino is vulnerable. The Sumatran rhinoceros is in extreme danger. They said there's only a few remaining pockets of populations, and they're so small that they don't seem like they could be viable. There are less than 80 Sumatran rhinos left in the world. It's still hard to get those population numbers, right? Number three, gorillas, which I talked about a couple weeks ago. So you can go back and check that out. There was some good news with the mountain gorillas. Their numbers have been going up, but everything else, not so much. They're in a steady decline. Number two, I was kind of surprised to see this on this top 10 list. Especially this close. But um, number two is the hawksbill turtle. Oh. Which is a turtle that I have worked with. Yeah. It has seen 84% of the population decline within three generations. And its estimated current numbers are 15,000 to 23,000 nesting females. And most of it's because of poaching for their shell. They have the one that people like to make jewelry with. Right. Most people don't eat them, but they just... Kill them for the shell only. It's a bummer. That's not cool. Yeah. So number one. I feel like I know what it's going to be. You're going to know. Of course, it's the orangutan. There are three species of orangutans, the Sumerian, the Bornean, and the Tapanuli. And all three are considered to be critically endangered. They are found only on Indonesia, Borneo, Malaysia. And across those three species, there's estimated to be less than 120,000 left in the world. What do you call a group of orangutans? Well, first, you have to tell me how you're saying that because I, growing up in Georgia, it, you know, there it's orangutan. That's not how you say <laughs> it. There's no, there's no tang. There's no G at the end. Did y'all see that orangutan? It is not an orangutan, people. <laughs> so it is an orangutan. And do you know why it is called an orangutan? Because it is orange. Because it's basically the combination of two Malaysian words. Orang means person and oh. hutan means forest. Oh, a so forest person. It's the people of the forest. That for some reason just makes me more sad. It's so depressing. <laughs> do you know what a group of orangutans is called? No clue. It's called a Congress, which is kind of funny because I feel like in the real Congress, if there were all orangutans, it would like go better. It would definitely (laughs) go better. Okay, so in 1976, the numbers for the Bornean orangutans was 280,000. That's basically been the decline. In 1971, they only knew that there was, or they only said at the time, there's one species of orangutan. According to Dr. Brute Galdicus, and I really hope I'm not saying her name wrong, but I know I'm saying orangutan correctly and she'll appreciate that because she did say it's a little irritating that people don't ever say it right. She said that at the time when she was still in grad school in the late 60s, early 70s, that scientists, I've heard other professors talk about this, that they were lumpers. 
they would just lump species together. And right. then later she said she called it a taxonomic inflation. <laughs> so they just started really separating out species based mm-hmm. on maybe locations or varieties, right? So right. or subspecies or varieties of species. They love to do that. I'm going to talk about her because that's when she actually went to Borneo to start studying. The orangutan was in 1971. And I want to talk about her first because I feel like everything that she did is how we know what we know about Mm -hmm. orangutans. She was on the forefront. She was a trailblazer. She was, you know, a trimate. She was born in Germany after the end of World War II. Her parents moved to Canada. They were originally from Lithuania. Um, She grew up and went to school in Toronto. Her first book she checked out from the library was... Curious Everybody George. poops. Oh. <laughs> Say I don't again. think they made that yet. <laughs> Curious George. She was oh. six years old. And she was so inspired by the man in the yellow hat and his unruly monkey that, that guy- by second grade, she was like, I want to be an explorer. I just think it's so cute. When her family moved from Canada to the U.S. in 1964, mm-hmm. she had already completed for her first year of college at University of British Columbia in Vancouver. When they moved, she applied to be in the natural sciences program at UCLA, and she got her bachelor's in psychology and zoology in 1966. And her master's degree was in anthropology oh. in 1969. When she was there as a graduate student, she met the famous anthropologist, Dr. Louise Leakey, which that we talked about him. Very he familiar. was the guy who oh, funded all the, the trimates. trimates. Yeah. Yes. So he had already worked, he had already been funding Jane Goodall at that time right. for like 10 years. Mm-hmm. And she was the first. And then he had already started um, working with Diane Fossey. And so she came along and she was like, hi. I have wanted my whole life to go work with orangutans. I've known this since I was a kid. I, it's what I'm going to do. Can you help me? Either way, I'm going. But if you can help me, this will be like the best. And she said that she didn't feel like he was very interested. But she, because I listened to a lot of her interviews. And she's mm-hmm. like, I felt something though. She's like, he was like, oh, yeah, I can look for funding. She said, but I felt it. I saw it in his eye. I knew he would do it. A couple of years later, he had found the funding for her to go to Borneo to start studying orangutans. She ended up going in 1971. She was married at the time. She ended up at the Tanjung Pudding Reserve in Indonesian Borneo. There were no telephones, no roads, electricity, television, nothing. There was no mail. It was just nothingness. It was just jungle. I know. This is like the ultimate Peace Corps right here. She was told by everybody, her professors, everybody, that she wouldn't be able to do it and it could not be done. She would not be able to study orangutans in the wild. And she's like, oh, yeah, watch (laughs) Watch me. (laughs) So she said that they would be too elusive and too difficult to find, especially in these deep swamps. But she went. And a year later, 1972 is when Dr. Leakey, remember I was telling you he died while he was, he had a heart attack when he He was was visiting Jane Goodall. Yes, going Mm -hmm. over her notes and all her, you know, amazing stuff that she was doing. But she ended up naming the camp because she basically was like, I'm where this is going to be our camp, just like Diane Fossey did. Mm -hmm. We're in the middle of this thing. Here's a good spot. I mean, I'm sure she worked with all the locals and was like, can it be here? And they said yes. And she called it Camp Leakey. Oh, it's still there today. So this is where it all began with like two little tents or houses. And that was going to be their research center, the beginning of it. A couple of years later, she wrote her first cover article for National Geographic. It is the coolest cover. She went to this conference with a bunch of primatologists and anthropologists and everything. And it was her and Diane and Jane Mm -hmm. were all there. It's the coolest picture of the three of them. You'll see it. Okay. Pretty cool. And she immediately started trying to just talk to people. 
to get support. Bring attention to this. And imagine this is in the early 70s. There was still some forest at that time. A lot of people were saying that orangutans are solitary animals. They're different than chimpanzees and gorillas. And she was like, when I went to the field, people said they were totally solitary. But later she discovered that they have a lot of social uh, relationships. And she proved that all those years that she was out there. One of the things in one of the interviews I watched with her was she followed an orangutan for a 100 days commitment. And she was like, I would look up in the trees and I would think like, I'm so lonely. I wish I had somebody with me. This is a very lonely endeavor. (laughs) Just watching (laughs) this. And she's like, and that orangutan would look back at me and be like, I'm not lonely. Bye. You know, but they were, they were alone, but they just don't have that. She's like, they don't really have that need to be with other, you know, like in those social environments, Mm -hmm. but they do have social interactions. One of the things that she was first to document was that they have this really long birth interval, 7.7 years. So about eight years. She recorded 400 types of foods consumed by orangutans, which gave a lot of information about their ecology, like what they needed. She also helped discuss the ecology of their social and uh, organization and mating systems. Another thing that I guess people thought that they were omnivores, that they kind of ate everything, but she said they rarely ate meat, but they ate a lot of fruit, bark, leaves, insects. She's like a ton of insects. And nobody else had ever recorded that. She also was really trying to look for signs of tool use. So Leaky was an ant, he was looking at human evolution, right? right? And that's why he wanted them to go out and study great apes because there was that connection. And Jane Goodall was the first to document tool use by chimpanzees, which connected them, right? Because they didn't couldn't do the genetics. And at the time, she had seen very little at that point, like nothing more than like a male breaking off a dead branch and using it to scratch his butt, she said. <laughs> but a bit more importantly, they they can manipulate things in their environment that would require some sort of intellect for tool use. For example, they process some foods before they eat it. So there's certain fruits that have a sticky sap. They would pick them and place them on their side upside down on the ground so that all the sap would run out. And and then later they would actually eat the fruit when they would no longer, you know, so they wouldn't get the sap all over them. Because imagine they have like long hair and all that stuff. Yeah. They also made fans with leaves and use them like on their heads. She said they love putting things on their heads. And she's like, strictly speaking, it's not tool use because... It's still attached to tree or, you know, but Mm -hmm. she's like, it does require some sort of intellect. In the 50 years, it's been 50 years. Wow. I know. 50 years in 2021 since she was first there. Camp Leakey is big now. There's 30 Indonesians there, another 10 at another camp. And this was a little while ago, so it could be more now. They basically spend time like returning confiscated and donated pets. So basically it's a rehabilitation and release. They say they have 12 to 14 Westerners at a time (laughs) or volunteers that go through Earthwatch. And that's a primary source of funding. And she does talk about that. You're paying to go there, but you're helping support that. And you're also showing all the people in Indonesia or orangutans are important enough that you would pay to go see them. Just a little more about her. She also ended up um, getting divorced in 1981 because she's like, I'm just going to stay here forever. And her husband was like, yeah, I got to I got to go. It didn't work out. It's fine. I get it. She ended up getting remarried to a man, Pak Bohap Benjalan. He is native Dayak, didn't speak English, never left Borneo. And everybody was like, they seem like an odd couple because 
She's a member of the Bat Conservation International, mm-hmm. and he eats bats. <laughs> so oh. like, I completely relate to that as well. That It's a cultural thing, you know, yeah. you just respect. But they have three children together, and oh, she had nice. one from her first marriage. She started in 1986 the Orangutan Foundation International, or OFI. It's actually based in LA. It's her and her husband um, work together to build this organization, and it's also in Australia, um, in the UK. And that's where they do research and they also do the rehab. And um, there's a couple other organizations I'm going to mention at the end, but not only like the deforestation, they're also killed for bushmeat. A lot of times when they're burning the forest, they just get burned. A lot of the palm oil farmers um, kill them because they see them as like an agricultural pest. Um, so when they don't have their forest anymore and they go back to those areas and they start going around messing with the palms, they get killed. Where she gets a lot of captive orangutans is from people taking them to be pets in the exotic pet trade. And they estimate there's about 700 to 1,000 orangutans kept in Taiwan. Like it's a big thing in Taiwan. Just Taiwan? And just Taiwan. Taiwan is so small. I know. And a lot of people that get them realize that they get big and they break things and they just let them go on the street. What? Yes. A lot of people say there's five or six orangutans die for everyone that's brought into captivity. Essentially, that means that 5,000 to 7,000 have died. And also, they kill the moms. So it's really difficult for an infant to survive without the mom. She said, it's all very discouraging until last year. And I'm not sure what year this um, was. But I went on record over and over again arguing that what was destroying orangutans was habitat destruction. Now it looks like this incredible poaching, this incredible killing of the mothers for their infants may be playing an even bigger role. And this brought me to the story I saw a long time ago, and it is like haunting. There's another organization called the Borneo Orangutan Survival Foundation, and they kind of do similar things um, in a different part of Borneo. They also help rescue and rehabilitate, release they were told about and went and confiscated an orangutan, a female orangutan who was sh- uh, chained to a wall, laying on a mattress, completely shaved. She was used as a sex slave in a village in Borneo. Oh, I remember this. And her name is Pony, and she spent most of half her life as a sex slave, among other abuses. Basically, it's traf- she's being trafficked as a sex slave. That's messed up. Who are these people? I just, it's hard to think that people like that exist in this world. I mean, we know they do, but it's just really hard to fathom. So she was finally rescued in February of uh, 2003 in dire need of intensive treatment at the time. And she had not ever been socialized. They actually took her, they got her healthy, and they put her in what they call forest school, um, where she began to learn like forest survival skills. And people helped her out, were taking care of her. She did pretty well. She was lacking a lot of, obviously, social skills. And I read in this other article, and I don't know why this happened. I don't know if she was taken somewhere and then somewhere else. But somehow, the woman it was a woman who had kept her captive. Somehow, the woman who kept her captive was able to go see her because they convinced them that this would be good for her to see a familiar face. No. Apparently, she started screaming and defecating as soon as that woman came back. Like, it was so traumatic. Traumatizing to yeah, her. so traumatizing. And they're like, nope, nope. And that was it. The lady wasn't ever allowed to see her again. How did that conversation even happen? Hey. How is that person not in jail, just ostracized forever? So around 2010, they released her. 
but she was moved back because she wasn't able, she was failing to thrive in the wild. I won't go through all the the details, but if you you can look on their website and it talks about it. Basically brought her back, spent more time with her. She seemed like she was ready to go. They sent her out to where all the other rehabbed and released orangutans were living and she didn't do too well. And they say she only lasted a couple months and then they found her weak and lethargic. The medical team brought her back. She had wounds. Her hair was dry. Like she wasn't getting the right kind of nutrition and she had lost weight. So she just wasn't able to ever to make take care it of herself, in yeah. the wild. Yeah. Um, she had another year of like medical supervision. And then when she got better, they put her back to this, what they call a socialization complex. And that's where she just stayed till now because they were like, we're not going to do this to you. You just stay with us. We tried, (laughs) but it's just, she's not going to make it out there because it's really sad. But if you, there's a picture of her, like a before and after, and she looks beautiful now. As of this article, she, and I think it's pretty recent. She was, she's 21 years old and in very good health. She's 21? She's 21. Oh. Let's go into a little bit of their biology, even though I've talked quite a bit about them. So as these people of the forest are, of course, are one of our closest relatives, they share 97% of our DNA. They're the largest arboreal animals in the world. Yeah, okay. And they spend most of their time in their rainforest canopy. They eat, sleep, breed, and give birth, sometimes hundreds of feet above the air. I've read a little bit differently on that, but they do spend a lot of time on the ground too. They are also the only great ape native to Asia. They have incredibly strong arms that are twice as long as their legs. Mm. Adult males get these large, thick pads of fat that frame their faces, cute cheeks. It's like if you had a giant thumb and you like pinch their cheek. Yes, probably you wouldn't want to do it, but no. Um, They also are the only great ape that doesn't live in a large group. They love one of their favorite fruits is the, uh, how do you say it, durian? Oh, the durian? Durian smells like garlic. Yeah. Yeah, they love that thing. I don't know what it is. I'm sure I should look it it up. Is it durian that you can't take on the subway? (laughs) Probably. In some place. With their big, long, strong arms, because they do so much climbing, they have uh, opposable big toes that have a grip strength four times that of a human hand. We've seen them on the ground. They're not very like smooth sailing on the ground. They're kind of like clumsy, I guess, Mm -hmm. because they're meant to be in the trees. Right. They love to like fly around like trapeze artists in the trees. I don't know why, but you just talking about that made me think of that song from the Jungle Book. So you want to be a man, man, go. Want to be like you, hoo, hoo. I want to walk like you, talk like you, hoo, I was reading on Wikipedia about Mm -hmm. orangutans and it was like... The ones that were vilified, and it talked about that one. He was not a good guy. But I feel like, no. So the Sumatran orangutan, which is only found in Sumatra, has the lighter colored hair, and it's longer than that of the Bornean orangutan. Bornean orangutans have darker hair, and the males have more pronounced cheek flanges. I think I'm saying that right. That curve forward. For orangutans, there's sexual dimorphism, so the males are about twice the size of the females. And they usually get those flanges. It says in their teens, but I remember Dr. Galdicus was saying it's like in their, in their night around 18 or 19. And they'll develop over time as they get older. So you can tell if it's a subadult if they don't have those yet. Oh. And the females never get that. Or if it's a less dominant male, they won't get it. It's like feral cats. Kind of. It's like a tomcat. Yeah. They have yeah. like the big neck and big face. The big cheek. Mm-hmm. Crazy thing, the females raise their infants... You know, they, I was saying they only have a baby every about eight years. 
And they That's can, so they will keep their infant with them for 10 years. Isn't that crazy? So the females go around with their infant. So the baby actually stays with them, like holds onto them for five years. And then it'll start going on its own, but it's still with the mom. No, thank you. So if you think about <laughs> it, so if the baby stays around for 10 years, mm-hmm. but you know, she'll have another one in eight years. So that one will still be around. And they say that if it's a male, she'll be like, kind of get aggressive with it like get the hell out of here oh. at a point it's got to go no one's sleeping in her basement <laughs> no no they say say seasonally groups of adults may come together to select different fruit trees their babies might hang out together mm. which i think hang out because they do eh. like, for a few <laughs> days but mostly they stay by themselves so one of the things that doctor i wanted to talk about this because we all love the adorable orangutan but let's talk about they have some similarities to the dolphins. No. So if you really want to see a really good talk on YouTube given mm-hmm. by Dr. Galdicus, go watch. She gave a presentation. Just like look up her name with um, Central Washington University. And she gets like a little over an hour. Her talk is so good. She's so soft spoken and she's so humble that you just, I don't know. I just really like her. I think she's just the coolest. One of the most important discoveries she made when she all those years of studying them was about their uh, mating. She said, basically, there seem to be two tactics that orangutans employ. One is concertship, like you let are allowing, like we're doing this and we're both on, you know, we're into it. And the other one would be forced copulation. That sounds not consensual. Not consensual at all. She said, suggesting that even deviant human sexual activity, including rape, may have deep rooted instinctual roots. Consortship begins when a male booms his vocalization called the long call through the forest. Mm-hmm. A receptive female will respond and the two will find each other. As in many other species, normally shy females can be quite brazen while they are receptive. I feel you. Once she saw a female named Beth <laughs> approach a, a prime male. She shook a vine in his face, slapped his stomach, tweaked his genitals. And when this failed to arouse his attention, she urinated on his head. <laughs> convinced him eventually he went with her she's like well that's it she's like now it's the golden shower time was his name donald (laughs) seriously (laughs) maybe they're into that that's fine that's your kink she's like you're not into me like slapping you and pinching your genitals it must be the urine it's the urine and he's like fine Let's go. I just love that her name is, they named her Beth. <laughs> she's just Beth. It's such an innocent name. She's just wearing little glasses. She's got a bun she's like in a her librarian. hair. Yeah. She takes the pencil out of her hair. She's like, normally I'm shy, but there's something about you. Her hair falls down. <laughs> she breaks out a whip. She opens her coat. She's just like straight leather and heels. This is like an 80s, um, like MTV, like, like a... Absolutely. Yeah. Hot for teacher? Yes. 100%. I feel like that's happening right now. <laughs> then after this, they will travel, a pair will travel through the forest for two to 10 days, feed each other, nuzzle, and do the deeds. Nine and a half days. For <laughs> as long as the female is receptive. And there when she's go. no longer receptive, she peases out. She's like, I'm out. <laughs> I thought you just said, she pees. <laughs> she pees. She pieces out. She doesn't pee. Well, out. she might. She might. Maybe she's like, okay, this One is last, the last time. Last hurrah. Deuces. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, wow. Uh, wow, that's a that's an interesting uh, courtship. Exactly. And so Dr. Galdicus says, it is and it isn't like human courtship. As in humans, there is, she said, there's a great deal of female selection, but the male-male competition is more fierce and much more direct than scientists believe. Researchers had previously thought that orangutans did not fight, but she found out like all other primates that they actually do. So forced copulations usually involved immature males who attack adult females. In many ways, it is like human rape. The female resists fiercely and tries to bite her attacker. She also emits a peculiar distressed grunt that Dr. Galdicus has never heard in any other context. She said when she arrived at the Tanjong Putin, the native Indonesians told her that orangutans occasionally raped human females as well. And she was like, no way. I don't, she didn't believe it. Until one came into her camp and raped an Indonesian cook. (gasps) No. Yes. Till now, she always warns women visitors who are menstruating to carry a club and don't venture among male orangutans in the camp. You know, looking at the evolution of orangutans, they're obviously trying to like, okay, why would this happen? How does this benefit the species, right? So one possible reason, she said, is because it takes so long for males to mature in the rainforest. Mm -hmm. She said captive males usually become mature around 13 or 14, but in the rainforest, they it's like 20 by the time um, they become sexually mature. And only when they develop the cheek pads and this large throat sac so they can do that right. yell before that happens they they actually are capable of sexual activity females in heat are just not attracted to them so their only sexual option is like by force so basically the older females are like you don't have the big cheeks you're not ready not into i'm it. not into you i don't want you i'm not peeing on your head and they're like but i want to and so i'm going to do it regardless do it. Yeah, and because they're bigger. They're, you know, they're much bigger than the females. She had mentioned it in that talk I was listening to that she, it could also be a form of like, I guess, learning for them, you know, so that time before they're actually uh, mature at Mm -hmm. age 20. So that time maybe when they're like 15, 16, they're they're not, the females don't want them yet, but they're practicing in a way, I guess. So for copulation or mating later on. She also said that, you know, they also looked into why do the females have babies every eight years and carry their young with them for so long? Yeah, what's up with that? They look at that even elephants, they're much bigger and they have shorter birth intervals. Mm -hmm. And she said it's because nothing preyed on them in the wild, in the rainforest. Oh. They were totally safe in the rainforest. So it was like we can spend time together. They you don't have spend, to grow up so fast. And I don't know if I have it here, but she said there is no other um, mother-child relationship in the world with any other mammal that can compare to orangutans other than humans. It's like a crazy bond. So Well, the fact that they carry them for five years, that's, I like feel like, carry better. Them around. I feel like that's better than humans. I... I think at five, I was like, dude, you're real heavy. I can't do this anymore. My girl just, yeah, she's six and I'm like. (gasps) She's she's practically as tall as you, though. I mean, let's be. (laughs) (laughs) She's going to be so tall. Just the fact that you're talking about how close they are with their babies and then those babies being taken as pets or uh, bushmeat or whatever that breaking up that relationship just in my mind the imagination of it Mm -hmm. is like very sad poachers are people taking these infants for you know the exotic pet trade they kill the mom and then take the infant and they find infants all over the place that's why when you look online and we follow all of these organizations you see so many infants 
-hmm. It's because they've gone around and found them and, you know, brought them in to try to rehabilitate them. But most of the time they die because they just can't live without their their moms. Another weird thing about their sex, I guess orangutans, they regularly have intercourse face to face. (laughs) Kind of weird. The way that you looked at me and you're like, face to face. (laughs) They say, I guess whales do this too. But I guess among most land animals, it was only thought that humans had sex like face to face. I could understand whales because like that's kind of a, uh, although whale penises, I think are very large, right? I don't, I've I've never seen one. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I it's also like, Never seen it's one. It's just like, eh. So, <laughs> it's gotta be. So yeah. Like, do you think the female um, orangutan strokes the male's cheeks? cheeks? His phalang- phalanges? His phalanges. Phalanges. <laughs> like, she's, she's like, you're doing great. I love you so much. She like pinches them. She's like, look into my face. <laughs> she just holds them, <laughs> like, them. gives them like a stare. I'm look gonna, in my eyes. I'm going to pee on you so hard. <laughs> Some people are into that, Jen. I guess. I don't know if I said that females usually have their first baby at around 14 years of age. Oh, I don't think you did. Yeah. Um, And like I said, the males are a little bit longer. So the females mature, uh, I mean, Faster. same. Faster. Yes. Yeah. They cycle every month, but they're only receptive for about four days during that time. That sounds about right. It's a pretty good window. <laughs> <laughs> they've got uh, a little they got a little apple watch on they're like all right honey they is, just is, grab the cheek right they're like is anyone in this area ready it's, i i'm ovulating you've got four days starting now, now. <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if i talked much about their that they nest but they build a nest a different nest every day oh like uh gorillas like how you're saying gorillas yeah yeah you? there usually are some altercations between the males for territory and being able to choose and which ladies. ladies. Yeah, so a lot of the older males, you'll see like scars, especially on their cheeks. You'll hear loud bellows, slapping, biting. They may say very similar to the style of shoving that sumo wrestlers do, but it's hardly ever fatal. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Not like the chimpanzees that they'll just rip your face <laughs> off. Once pregnant, the females will fix like a really nice nest. It'll usually include more than one level. But when she does give birth, it's uh, about 100 feet off the ground in her nest. Isn't that crazy? That nest better be secure. Seriously. You know what I mean? That baby's small, but the babies are so cute. You've seen them. <laughs> yeah. Little infant orangutans are so cute. So I was reading somewhere like, who would win, an orangutan or a gorilla? Nest like, making or like fighting? Fighting. So the males, the big males reach about five feet in height and can weigh around 250 pounds, much smaller than a gorilla. Oh, and another thing is orangutans are not knuckle walkers like gorillas and chimps, but they walk on the palms of their hands or balled up fists because they have like super long curved fingers and toes for the swinging around, which using their hands as like hooks to swing, you know, we've seen it, Mm -hmm. to latch on to the branch, you know, and go from branch to branch. That style of um, movement is called brachiation. So when they make their ways through the vines or vegetation, their fingers are so long, they can curl around the smaller branches to secure themselves. And the tops of the first two digits of each finger lock against the inside of the palm. And then like they call it an orangutan super grip. (laughs) and then infants they're born with this gripping instinct so they can hold like thin strands of hair 
So it just starts from there. That sounds awful as the mother. You're like, ouch. It's just like the tiny, you know, like when you would pick up your baby and they've got kind of like sweaty or sticky palms oh, and they God. like touch the very back of your hair and they just get like the baby hairs. Oh, my older one would pinch like the underneath of my arms. Jesus like Christ. that tiny like yes. skin that's like so the sensitive. most sensitive skin. Oh, yeah. She would pinch so hard. Among the great apes, the gorilla and uh, the bonobos and orangutans can are pretty Pretty peaceful compared to humans and chimpanzees. Chimpanzees, yes. man. I like that we're there with chimpanzees. It's perfect. So chimpanzees um, are organized hunters. They regularly use weapons like <laughs> clubs and rocks and are more active, like busy than the, like the orangutans, which are really slow moving and just like super chill. There was more of an in-depth study on orangutans, like their intelligence done in 2011. It was at this research facility in Indonesia. And there was a scientist from University of Manchester that spent like a whole year just observing, documenting, filming orangutans as they build nests. And the study uh-huh. concluded that they possess this complex knowledge of mechanical design and, me- and using different materials. Mm-hmm. They select specific types of limbs when constructing the base of their nest compared to smaller and more flexible branches for the sides. It's almost like they make like blankets and pillows and roofs. Like they build an apartment basically as their nest. I love it. They say that their nest building skills are more complex than any other non-human of the great ape. One of the things they think is what's happening while the little infants or the babies stay so long with their mom is that they have to learn this technique and it takes a long time. So they make pillows out of soft shoots and blankets out of large leaves. Do you feel like you know a lot about orangutans? I do. I feel I know more than I did before. Okay, good. So now we're going to talk about conservation efforts. A lot of different things happening um, for conservation to help save wild orangutans. The biggest issue now is the palm oil plantations. Mm. When you see the map, it's going to blow your mind how much is fragmented. What she was saying was this area that was still green and she was like, this is still here because there have always been people there. We have been there watching people, making sure things didn't happen like physically being there protecting that forest is what it's taken for the last 50 years to protect some of these patches that are left because people are taking land illegally and turning it into plantations because they just want to make the money so there are some solutions there is a roundtable on sustainable palm oil or rspo that was formed in 2004 in a response to increasing concerns about the impacts of the palm oil industry and its effects on the environment and the culture communities. Mm-hmm. The RSPO has a production standard that sets these best practices for producing and sourcing palm oil. It has the buy-in of most of the global industry, so they encourage companies to set set these policies to remove deforestation, conversion of the natural ecosystems such as peatlands, and human rights abuses from their supply chains. They encourage companies to buy and use RSPO certified palm oil across their operations globally. So make sure that the companies are investing in the right, the sustainable more palm ethical, oil, more yeah. ethical, yeah, palm oil industry. They also want companies to be transparent in their use and sourcing of palm oil, like let people know. I'll give you some sites you can go to that will help you see which companies and what's using it and or who is and who's not. But if you have to read a label, it is super confusing. It could be in the form of so many different I was, names. I was totally going to ask you 
that it can't just be listed as like palm oil. No. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a big question is why don't we just switch to an alternative vegetable oil? Sure. And they say, well, it's because it's like I said earlier, it's a super efficient crop um, and they produce more oil per land than any other vegetable oil crop. It's going to be real hard to turn it around unless people just stop using it. We can't get out from under people using palm oil. It's too ubiquitous or whatever. Yeah, and it's too widespread into everything. But Mm -hmm. you can find companies that make the ethical choices and support them. So this RSPO, it represents the largest independent third-party standard for the sustainable production of palm oil. For now, this is what we have. You should continue to use RSPO certified palm oil. Avoid boycotts since we know substitutions with other vegetable oils can lead to even further environmental and social harm. So I guess the key is don't boycott it completely, but make sure you're buying sustainable. It's like don't swing the pendulum too far the other way. Yeah, I think that's what they're saying. But if you listen to Dr. Galdicus, she's kind of like, you need to not use those things. Right. I think it's basically just more of like, try not to consume so much. And the things that you can't avoid, try to make better choices. I think too, if you go the whole foods route, like if you're buying more whole foods Mm -hmm. and making your own, because a lot of things that have these different oils in them are already processed. processed. So if you just buy the raw ingredients and make it yourself, that's also, I know that's not an economical solution for a lot of people, which is, I think probably what fuels these economies in things like palm oil is that there are a lot of people who rely on processed foods because they're just cheaper. Yeah. It's just cheaper. I mean, That's I've definitely what they can afford. I've definitely lived below the poverty line and uh, been like this absolutely. is what I can do. Like yes. I cannot do. Yep. I cannot do better than this. So, it's just going to have to be what it is. Yeah. You know, but if you're able, if you're financially able to do those things, then that's something you should consider doing. The key is the more people know, mm-hmm. the more it'll push things in that direction slowly. Right. right. WWF or the World Wildlife Federation has this palm oil buyer scorecard, palmoilscorecard.panda.org. And you can go to that and and see which brands and retailers are using sustainable palm oil. That's cool. That's um, free of deforestation and destruction of nature. So it's still kind of confusing, but it helps. I can't help but draw some kind of joke in my mind. I don't know what the joke is, but there's a joke there. Someone should write it about the WWF and what The Rock is cooking for dinner. Oh, I'm just saying there is something there. There's something you're on to something. It's on the tip of my tongue. Let's hear your jokes. So Megan, um, we're to the organization to support. Obviously, we're going to support the Orangutan Foundation International at orangutan.org. That is the one that Dr. Gildicus started nice. in 1986. Makes sense. They care for and rehabilitate more than 330 orphaned orangutans and other endangered wildlife at their care center um, and quarantine facility and then successfully return them to the wild. They maintained Camp Leakey and the, the scientific research that's being done there. They patrol more than 1 million acres of forest habitat to prevent illegal Ooh. logging, mining, poaching, and encroachment by palm oil plantations. Um, they restore degraded forest areas through tree planting nice. and protect orangutan habitat through land purchases. So buying back the land or buying land that's still intact. Um, they support conservation, outreach, and education, Love obviously, it. and protect the world's largest remaining wild orangutan population from extinction. That's and nice. you can go there. I've always said it. I've always said I'm going to go. I'm going to go to Indonesia and I'm going to hold some orangutans and be like, I love you, but not 
when I'm menstruating. No males. <laughs> no males. I'm good. <laughs> Thank you. Once you've gone through menopause, like carry a club. You're golden. <laughs> I know, right? That <laughs> sounds good. They're pretty amazing. And one of the things that um, in the interview I was listening, one of her interviews I was listening to is she was like, it's all about people being educated, people understanding what's happening with the palm oil industry. Right. That's what people really need to know. Another one that she had mentioned to support was the Rainforest Action Network. Ran, R-A-N, dot org. And I got a lot of information about the palm oil industry from them. Mm -hmm. So I think Mm -hmm. they work closely together. So they preserve forests, protect climate, and upholds human rights by challenging corporate power and systemic injustice through frontline partnerships and strategic campaigns. Nice. Some other ones, of course, the Borneo Orangutan Survival.org. There's also the Orangutan Project, which is part of the Wildlife Conservation International. And they're at theorangutanproject.org. There's also the Orangutan Land Trust. And for some reason, I didn't write down there. Um, Fired. <laughs> anyway, it'll be in the notes. There are ones that will buy back land. And they also work closely with plantation owners and everything to try and like stop the illegal spread of more plantations. There's a lot going on. 50 years. I mean, on the level of trimates, I might, she might have just bumped Jane Goodall. Goodall. Oh, like, no. Right? I, oh, I just, no. Oh, no. I know. I was reading that she, you know, she dealt with a lot of harassment, threats, you know, over the years, and that she actually, at one point, they say she was kidnapped. What? But I couldn't find the story. I was like searching for it. So I decided maybe she'll be my, I can be friends with her. You find out the story. You guys have some wine. I'll go to, I'll go there. Definitely. I will bring a bottle of wine. I don't know if she drinks wine. Right. You're going to have to find out. It doesn't matter. Definitely. Uh, Maybe Bailey's. Bailey's. Whatever. whatever. Or or nothing. We'll just drink tea. Water. And the other thing is, so before we get to your um, emergency preparedness kit, is you can also go to her website and you can foster... Uh, orangutan like usually one of the baby ones and yeah. we are fostering one. Oh yay and it's a little girl and her name is proudfoot and i thought that was so cute it made me think of like land before time yeah so we are actually foster parents it actually makes me think of hobbits because proud feet so anyway megan that was a great story jen i enjoyed that i'm glad you enjoyed it so if you were going to um go to yes. indonesia and yes. I'm not sure you would need to protect yourself against maybe a male orangutan, but... Uh, maybe. Um, I feel like I'm not super worried about orangutans. I'm, like, I'm not either. I'm not trying to go up in the trees. I'm afraid of heights. It's all yeah. good. I'm on the ground. Mm-hmm. I am not a big fan of people who are taking orangutans and exploiting them. Oh, yeah. Um, like the female orangutan that you told us about. I'm not a big fan <laughs> of people... That is a tough one. ...of people poaching... I'm not a fan. Exotic pet the- trade. Just Again, stop that was such it. a big soapbox moment for me. Ugh. I'm just going to go with, I'm going to bring a folding chair uh-huh. and just go WWE all over the place. WWE? What's that? WWF. Oh, <laughs> I was like, WWF. World. <laughs> I think there is a WWE, though. Is there? Yeah, pretty sure there is. World Wrestling Exploitation? Federation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to go like... You're just going to like Dwayne wrestle? the Rock Johnson. Going to let him have it. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, a nice folding chair. Are a you, folding metal chair. What if you had like, let's take this to Nacho Libre just for a second. Oh, let's. I mean, I named mo- Nacho, my cat, after Nacho Libre. What about a motorbike? So you can cruise around. <laughs> well, he had the basket in the back. He was like a big, you could put anything in that If thing. you found. It was a motor trike. If you found any animals in need, 
that were still you put them in there you take them back to you could put a little nest in the back yeah they could be comfy you are gonna be a protector i think what you need i guess is a protector kit which would be a folding metal chair a motor trike getaway a motor trike and but do you need like the wrestling mask because you don't you want to stay anonymous you want to yeah incognito agreed so you can keep going about yes. doing what you need to do. I don't want to culturally appropriate the Lucha Libre like mask or anything like that. I'm not. Right. I'm no, not a no. Latina. It's not, you know, mm-hmm. but I will say that, yes, you will need some kind of mask. Some sort of, yeah. To re- remain uh, incognito mm-hmm. so that, you know, you're safe. Uh-huh. People can't come after your family. Exactly. That kind of stuff. You were telling us about people who just get mur- protesters getting murdered. Like, no, not no. into that. Yeah. I guess that would be just like a like a hero starter pack. <laughs> exactly. You're a rainforest hero starter pack. Hero. Rainforest <laughs> hero starter pack. I like it. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Done. You any, include- any number of things. For me, it would be a metal folding chair and a getaway. So you can just like vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. You can just like camp out and stare Bing! at people. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. I'm glad we finally brought Nacho Libre into this because that is one of the best movies ever made. It's one of our favorites. I don't know why people don't understand. Just the magic of that movie. It's, it's so making great. me tear up right now just it's, thinking about it. It is so good. When he has his like fancy Perfect. pants. What does he call them? <gasps> Stretch- <laughs> stretchy pants. <laughs> stretchy pants. Oh, I just like, and it's so wholesome. The whole thing is so wholesome. So wholesome. One of my favorite things coming up on TikTok right now is the people who you can put like a mustache filter, and they will do the lines where he's like, when he's like, when he's talking about being single and like living <laughs> living alone for the rest of his life in a monastery. <laughs> oh, that's, so good. that's one of the best things, and it's like, you know, I think that maybe in a few years. It might be offensive at some point, but maybe somehow Jack Black makes it work. So good. Thank you. Um, I would like um, to shout out some patrons, Megan. Yes, let's do some patron shout outs. Can I go first? You may. Because I just love this name. I just want to give a big shout out to Grace. Thank you so much, Grace. For becoming a patron. Yes, welcome to the Nature Nerd family. And um, I'll shout out a very special patron mm-hmm. of ours who I think has really been a Nature Nerd family member since the beginning. Since the beginning. Since the beginning. You know, she's like, she's like our kin. <laughs> she's, she's our kin. She is. That's like right. Like most, like pretty much all the patrons, but she has joined us. Listen, she's like become our friend through, a very good friend through the podcast. But it's we also true. realized that we actually all work together in the same building, but she moved. It, she moved away. Yeah. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. We're sad, but. She'll be back. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So thank you so much, Lara. Thank for you. For joining Lara. our Nature Nerd family. We appreciate all of you. Yes. And um, Megan has told me that she's going to put together an amazing Patreon episode, bonus episode. It's going to be like super amazing. It's happening any minute now. Not tonight, because I'm definitely going to fall no, asleep we're tired. It's almost but, eight o'clock here. So but it is, um, it's going to, we're going to do it. It's for March. Yes. It's fine. March. We might, hey, we might pull our shit together in April. I'm just now realizing it's the end of March. It is. I was, that's why I was like, about it. today I was like, so we're going to do our Patreon and you're like. Honestly, <laughs> 
We'll get it together. We'll We'll get get it together together in April. And if you would like to become a Patreon, just go to our website, click the link, or you can go to our link tree and Instagram. And it's as easy as that. Just go to Patreon and sign up. It takes seconds. It's amazing. You'll become a certified and nature nerd. Another way you can support us is to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. If you give us a five-star review, we'll send you a sticker. Be sure to give us your address on the contact form on our website or email us at you're gonna die out there at gmail.com another way you can support is go to our website and check out our sponsors see if there's anything you'd like to order there's links you can get discounts they're all zero waste or eco-friendly businesses that support us and we love them and we're not gonna read the ads but you can go check it out be sure to follow us on instagram and twitter and wherever you get your podcast stitcher click that follow button that'll help us out as well you can also send us ideas for topics that you would like to hear crazy stuff you found online you can send that to our email or dm us on instagram and until next time don't die out there Bye. bye Um, this, oh my God, that's the French fries. What just happened? Did you just throw up? No, but he's just like, <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like a lot of regurgitation. So there's two types of oil they can produce from this palm oil. I'm going to wait till you're done because last time I heard you yawning on the episode. <laughs> oh my God. Listen, Jen, you got to be able to fit into your, your high hipped <laughs> leotards. You know what I mean? You got to be, sh- you, you got to want to hey, show off that, that hip bone, Jane Fonda. That's why you had to counteract it with some leg warmers. Balance your body. Like what were the point of leg warmers? I, honestly, fashion. I will, I think it was like a ballet thing, right? It's a ballet thing. So yeah. uh, excuse me. I did take ballet for like nine years. Oh my gosh. Um, and I did wear leg warmers. They help with like your ankles. So when you're like warming up stuff, your ankles aren't so. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I get it for that. Yeah. But for like Jane Fashion? Fonda stuff. Oh, yeah. No, there's no reason. Just yeah. make sure. Just make sure your feet kind of sweaty. More sweaty. More sweaty. Just everything more sweaty. What if it comes back? What do we do? I would wear them. Oh. I like it. It kind of looked like a horse, <laughs> like a Clydesdale. <laughs> I would wear it. Yeah. It's like, uh, like a, I would get leg warmers that look like horse what hair. What if shoulder pads come back? No, not in a million freaking years never because you had to have that v shape yeah so you could like yeah but i just look like because i already have kind of broad shoulders for a lady like (laughs) i just look like a freaking football like immediately i'm on the football field yeah it's crazy they're like you're a linebacker well i guess there's also the the bonobos also have face-to-face uh sex but bonobos are I think there's something weird about bonobos, right? They're real weird. <laughs> we we should do it. We'll be another episode. Oh god. Hey, so they many. Need a, they need a formate. I could go study some bonobos. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'm like, look. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Formate. <laughs> <laughs> I just make myself one. Yeah.